Welcome back, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. We have a great episode up for you tonight. I'm author and ghost historian Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, is Vanessa Hogel, my co-host, and down in the chat room, our chat shenanigator, Shauna, who will be shenanigating everything down there. With us tonight, yeah, with us tonight, uh, special guest Dr. Heather Lynn has returned. She just released yesterday her brand new book, Evil Archaeology. Give you a little background for those that missed last summer when uh, she was on. Dr. Heather Lynn is a professional historian and renegade archaeologist on a quest to uncover the truth behind ancient mysteries. She left a life in academia to pursue her fascination with the unexplained and now investigates ancient mysteries, lost civilizations, hidden history, ancient aliens, and the occult. Heather's work exposes our hidden history, challenging the accepted narrative found in mainstream history books. In addition to appearances on radio programs like Coast to Coast AM, Heather has been a historical consultant for television programs, including History's Ancient Aliens. Lynn is the author of The Sumerian Controversy and Land of the Watchers, and now Evil Archaeology. Welcome back, Heather. Great to have you on. Hi, great to be on. How are you? <laughs> Doing really well, doing really well. Uh, excited to have you on. I've uh, been looking forward to Evil Archaeology, and I'll go ahead and put the screen up here for everybody so they can see the uh, the fantastic cover. So uh, so tell us a little bit about what's going on here with, uh, with ancient archaeology. Oh, well, it's, um, there's so much, as you said, it just, uh, it, it just came out. Um, it's been a, a long piece in the making. I've, I've done a lot of research for this. Um, it, it actually has a, a, a funny, I guess, maybe or a strange uh, beginning for me. I uh, was brought up Catholic and, uh, you know, watched The Exorcist, although I was told yeah. I was not supposed to. No, I, grew up, I grew up Catholic as well. I know the deal. <laughs> <laughs> so there were some things that we were banned from watching, and The Exorcist was one of them, although I knew plenty of people who watched it. So, But, uh, yes, yeah, so I, you know, seeing The Exorcist and, um, you know, that, that opening scene with the priest archaeologist who, in the beginning, it's set in an archaeological excavation in Iraq. And... That, that sort of piqued my interest. It was something that was always very interesting and, and maybe weird to me when I first saw the movie when I was young. I, I didn't quite make the connection at all until you know I was much older. And I saw The Exorcist again on just network television. It was on, the, on in the background uh, one day. And that, that scene came on again. And, and watching it then as an adult and an archaeologist, I had a bit of a different perspective on it. It was something that sort of struck me as even more interesting it here's this priest and you know this idea of he sees this demon and and eventually the spirit is the one that uh, possesses the main character in the film and I thought well isn't, isn't that interesting you know so I started just thinking about that and it wasn't long afterwards that uh, I ran across a news story of a uh, a man who had been murdering and sacrificing and cannibalizing his neighbors and burying their remains in his backyard or um, actually the backyard of his mother's home that he lived in at the time. And uh, I thought, well, isn't, isn't this, you know, strange? The man's name was Pazuzu. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really bizarre. Isn't that the name of the demon in the movie, The Exorcist? And so that gave me pause. And I found out that his name was Pazuzu, but it was originally John Lawson. He had it legally changed to Pazuzu. 
and uh, in in honor of this demon. Wow. He said that he, yeah, he said that he was, uh, you know, honoring this demon and arguably possessed by the demon to do these sorts of things. He would, well, according to a psychiatric report, he had practiced the Sumerian religion that involved a monthly blood sacrifice, usually of a small animal to start, as they usually are. And then he moved up to humans and so on. And he said he would have to perform this ritual during what he called the Black Moon in order to appease the Sumerian demons and honor Pazuzu, um, which isn't really a a thing in, in Sumerian religion and in, in that way, but this is his interpretation of it. So it was really bizarre and pictures and video taken of the inside of his house were just completely disturbing. There are Sumerian markings and occult symbols all over the walls and ceilings of his living room and cut out pictures of Sumerian demons and Anunnaki pinned all over the walls. And it was just, it was dreadful, filthy kitchen where he'd prepared the victim's bodies for consumption, had fly tape covered in flies, hanging from the ceiling like hellish party streamers. It was just really awful. And he he was arrested and charged with first degree murder, um, along with his girlfriend and another female friend. They were charged with accessories after the fact. But at about three in the morning after he'd been arrested, the guards at the prison uh, found him in a pool of his own blood and the autopsy was sort of inconclusive about what actually killed him, but they did see that he had what looked like tried to cut off his arm. He had all sorts of deep scratches on his chest, arm, and scalp, along with rib fractures. Still, they, they couldn't really determine how he got the fatal blow that killed him, so they just said that it was suicide, clearly, because there was nobody else in there with him to do this sort of thing. But before that, he had begged psychiatrists to let him perform this so-called black moon ritual to Pazuzu, fearing that if he wasn't able to, it would anger the demon, and then he would somehow be killed by the demon. Even his own mother had warned police that if her son were unable to perform this dark moon ritual to Pazuzu, that he would likely end up dead, which he was. And so it was just a quite a disturbing story that, that came out of that all having to do with this Pazuzu in a way. And so I thought, you know, could Pazuzu the demon have been behind these murders? Could he have been responsible for the death of, of Algarad, the Pazuzu Algarad, the killer? And so it was something that, you know, clearly the killer himself was 100% to blame for his behavior and murders in this. So not as an excuse per se, but just this idea of, could he have done this alone or was he possessed or, you know, could these demons be working among the living people now, or was this just something from Mesopotamian myth? And so, you know, I just it just led me to think, well, what what would be the connection between ancient demons and now? And so, I, in this book, I sort of go along and I look at the roots of of demonology and exorcism, and I trace it along to the modern era and how it's affecting people today in terms of exorcism and paranormal experiences, haunted places, uh, perhaps haunted or possessed relics. And I look at uh, the top archeological, most gruesome archeological sites uh, for good measure. Some people find the archeological sites to be maybe haunted or possessed. There's been a lot of stories about that with particular ones like say mummies curses or different, you know, excavations where they have bodily arrangements that are quite frightening. So there's a lot of this lore and a lot of things. And so I try to just attempt to pull it all together with the question of, 
could demons be real? And if so, can we find evidence for that in both the historical and archaeological record? And is there anything science is doing today to sort of figure out whether or not this is real? And so it's a big exploration into these topics. And I don't obviously cover all bases because it would be a much longer book, but I try to do a, you know, a good job touching on some of those, those uh, bigger questions. Heather, I have a question for you. When it comes to this demon's name, which I'm not even going to attempt to try to pronounce. Pazuzu. Pazuzu? Pazuzu, with a P. Pazuzu, yeah. okay. Um, is this a case of a, because I'm, I'm not well-versed in demonology or in, in names applied to demons. I'm not, admittedly. But is this a case of somebody seeing a movie and becoming obsessed and applying a fictional name to a, almost to a sickness that they have, not unlike the movie The Craft that talked about Mano, who was the the end all be all have all of of God slash goddess, who Feruza Balk, who actually is a practitioner, I believe, actually acted as a consult for that movie um, mm -hmm. when it came to witchcraft. And that's a fictional name, but yet people in the pagan community have been known to use that name applied to magic. Is it that type of situation where it's a fictional thing applied, or is that an actual demon that's been in the Bible or in some type of historical documentation? You see where I'm going with that? Mm -hmm. Okay, what was it? Was it real? Was it not? See, that's that's a really good question, and that get and that gets at the heart of what it is that I was inspired to look into, and, and inspired is is actually sort of the the idea that I had around this. So, you know, I don't I don't know that these demons were real in a tangible sense uh, in that way. So, if you were saying it's like a an inspiration, and that's exactly the the question that I pose. So, the word inspire comes from the Latin inspirare, meaning to breathe or blow into, and it it originally described when a supernatural being imparted an idea to somebody. So it, this related then to the concept of in spirit. So I do something in the spirit of. So I think that you know, these demons or this idea of demons may be very real to some people, which can have lasting and real consequences. And so that's something that if this person was certainly inspired by something of fiction, say the movie or, or the book, they were inspired by that. So was the demon itself, was there a thing, an actual measurable spirit that is separate from that person? Does that exist? Did that, did that enter this person? Or is it that they saw this fictionalized thing and they were inspired by that, motivated by that? And if so, would that be enough to constitute possession? Could you then say, well, I was inspired by, or I was possessed by the Pazuzu spirit, or I did it in the spirit of Pazuzu. So it might get into a question of semantics and philosophical epistemology at, at that point. Um, but that was something that, that lured me into looking in this direction is, you know, possession in that true sense that we think of it in pop culture, where it's, there's a being that enters into a person and causes them to act in a way as like a maybe avatar that they're not responsible for their actions or is it just that somebody is inspired and perhaps they had a mental issue that you know allowed them to do this and in this particular case with Pazuzu 
I, I mean, I'm not a psychiatrist. He had psychiatrist. I would believe that he had mental problems and that's what they determined as well. It would make sense to me to think that he wasn't quite right. He had some screws loose and he went and killed people, but right. You know, was, was there something else there? Um, is it enough to be inspired by the idea of something? Would that then be considered possession? And so that's, and I don't really have those answers. And that's one of the reasons that I went and explored what history would say about that, what the ancients kind of thought about that. And then in terms of how it would kind of be looked at today, I interviewed Mike because he's a paranormal researcher and somebody who I felt probably had a better idea about whether or not unseen forces could have a manifestation in the physical world. And I also interview exorcists that have done modern day exorcisms. And I ask their opinions on what they think about somebody actually being possessed. And, you know, I, I found a lot of different answers that I hadn't, I didn't know before that there were more than just say possession, but there were things like obsession and, and all these steps before you could get fully possessed. And so, you know, I think it falls along those lines of, of what it means to actually be possessed. And maybe there are a lot of ways that those those behaviors can be expressed if it's a full possession or just an inspiration. Uh, definitely, though, there's there's something sinister, you know, even if it's just a, a dark force or an energy or something like that. And in terms of the medical issues, that's that's definitely a medical thing, a provable thing in terms of mental illness. But again, in the ancient world, they didn't separate those things. So you have the Sumerian texts that speak of exorcism, a thousand of them, a thousand of the medical texts, just speaking of medical cures and treatments and diseases that were known, a thousand of those medical textbooks in the British Museum, 660 of those actually reference and teach on exorcism because they looked at it as a holistic treatment that if you had a disease they would need to know the name of that disease so that they could treat it like a diagnosis but the diseases happen to be the demons so for instance if i had you know which i, I actually have we, we, we talked a little bit i have a little bit of a cold here and a cough and so i have some symptoms and if i were in ancient sumer maybe i would get really feverish and i would have a temple priest come and they would be giving me an exorcism or prepare me for exorcism to exercise the demon. Now the question would be, do you have bronchitis, pneumonia, a cold, or the flu? But in their mind, it would be, do you have Pazuzu, Lamashtu, you know, or any of these other demon names? And so once they knew the demon name, then they would know what sort of herb or process or whatever it was that they would do to cure it they would know based on the diagnosis of the name. So they merged those two ideas together, like a body, mind, soul, holistic approach. Whereas now, of course, we say, well, there's spirit and religion and those sorts of things. And then there's the body and the physical body and those things are separate. So in ancient times, they just didn't separate it. So, I think so now we just separate it. So they were actually assigning specific demons to specific illnesses. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, we have illnesses though mike you can actually see how that can be the case because especially if you became feverish having a, a high-grade fever can cause hallucinations can cause a change oh, yeah. in voice i mean i i can see where that would would be mistaken back before they knew better um and last thing that i'm going to shut up i love the fact <laughs> that you connected heather the inspiration to the obsession to the possession and showed the steps i think that's absolutely amazing 
And I think people really need to look at that because like you said, with Inspire, it's basically breathing life into something. And I think that's that's what happens on some of these cases. It's really important to understand. It's perhaps if, if we look at this from a framework of belief and we say, yes, this all exists, there's demons and there's this sort of process where it can start from one thing and move up to a, a full possession, then it could make sense to think that if someone is simply inspired or they have that idea breathed into them somehow, that they still at that point have the ability to say, oh, no, I'm not doing that, or I, I don't even want to get involved with that, or what am I thinking? You know, So there's that, and then there's the all the steps in between, all the way up to the full-blown possession where they, they no longer have the ability to have free will or say no anymore. They're just acting as a vehicle of evil, per se. So, sure. yeah. All right, uh, a couple of things real quick. We did have a $5 super chat from BD Flint, so thank you very much, BD. Absolutely thank appreciate you. that. Uh, we had a question here from Mickey Dole. I'm going to take it a, a step further, though. The question originally was, how did this guy learn about this ancient Sumerian religion? But I want to take that a little bit further, because uh, there's plenty of, I mean, today's day and age, of course, you can go online and start uh looking things up so I'm, I'm sure he grabbed from different sources and uh, you can start you know fudging the lines getting a little confused in a lot of these different areas so is uh, e is evil archaeology trying to set some of that straight yes absolutely <clears throat> excuse me yeah it, it appears that this pazuzu was inspired by ideas that he saw on the internet in terms of the the demons of Mesopotamia, particularly the Pazuzu figure, but it, it's it's more to the the idea. I think that he was inspired by our modern interpretation of Pazuzu, having something to do with maybe the Exorcist or these pop cultural references, uh, because this ritual that he speaks of, it's not it's not really a, a thing. It's almost as though he, he's made it up. So I think what he did was he filled in the gaps with what he wanted to do now i think if i if i'm correct in my research i found that he felt that he was getting these messages that this was pazuzu working through him that he was channeling this and then you know doing these things and so again it's whether it was just inspired or what he's still filling in the the, the gaps so i think he saw the original demons and maybe had some understanding of sumerian culture and beliefs but he didn't have enough because uh, they, the Sumerians didn't really even have a religion in that way that we understand it to be now. They had belief systems and they had demons and spirits and, and a whole sort of mythology or an ideology. But it, it's really, it, it was more ritual and it, it's just a whole different thing than how we look at religion now to say, oh, I'm Christian or Jewish or this sort of thing. It, it just wasn't quite that way. And so he had to go back and with his modern lens and, and ideas kind of repurpose bits and pieces of history, form it into what he felt and then go on. So yes, he didn't, some of these things like this black moon ritual, it's not really a, a thing, so to speak. Could he I have maybe pulled yeah. that from some other cultural context in, in the world and, and mesh that into his Pazuzu philosophy? It's it's likely, I'm sure, especially now with people just looking online and maybe yeah. he stayed up all night watching YouTube videos <laughs> or something. He may have. <laughs> you know, and so I don't I don't know, but that that's probably what happened. But uh, 
it does seem though he, he did have a fair understanding of Sumerian culture, but a lot of it was just, he, he didn't go by some of the best sources. It was not necessarily academic sources. And I, I tried to find if he was very inspired at all by the work of Sitchin or some of these more popular yeah. figures in Sumerian you know, literature or interpretations of the, the tablets. And it wasn't clear that he even got involved in, in it to that degree. But of course, a lot of the information wasn't publicly available uh, given the fact that the deaths were so gruesome and the the outcome was so tragic for everybody involved. Yeah, well, the work of Zachariah Sitchin is, is interesting because he did a lot of translation of those old texts and tablets. And... Of course, he took it, you know, really far down the, you know, ancient aliens route. Uh, where do you stand on them? Just kind of curious. Well, that is that's a, a really great question. I, that is something that I, I work with a lot. I look at the Anunnaki on in different books. Actually, I just finished a book that will be coming out in 2020 about this very question called the Anunnaki Connection. Nice. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I've, I've revisited Sitchin's work and I've revisited a lot of other people's work that's also been sort of cast aside because this this it's what we have going on now in this alternative community is that in an effort to stay alternative you know people need to look at alternative ideas and that also includes alternatives to the alternative because what we we have is the Sitchin narrative has become the overall narrative of the alternative viewpoint on Sumerian civilization. And that's not good either. Even though Sitchin has a lot of great and important things and points to make, it's it's now become a thing where that's all there is. And that's not that's not at all all there is. There are other researchers out there and have been for many decades even that have been researching the question of the Sumer what academics call the Sumerian problem, which the Sumerian problem is how is it that the Sumerian civilization just seemed to happen in an instant and everything that we have came from elsewhere. So this idea that there were at one point hunter gatherers, little groups of them, you know, they had their own cultures, they had their own pottery and different things but they they weren't organized very well they didn't have high civilization things like science and and high arts and and the things we consider to be civilization yet in just an instance there was just this boom of all of these wonderful and advanced technologies and all all even mainstream academics say this was transplanted this somehow came from outside because even the texts say so much as that that there are strangers that came to this land gave us all this amazing technology set us up and within the course of a 200 year period which is really a blink of an eye in the terms of history they went from hunter gatherers to full you know agrarian society they had amazing techniques for irrigation they had astronomy they had the high level mathematics they had so many things so rapidly and the sumerian problem is something that's been baffling people for a long time so sitchin comes out with his work and and just really paints an amazing story and a vivid depiction of what is going on here and it brings the story to the attention that it deserves it used to be something called Egyptomania, where people have been enthralled with the Egyptian culture, and you know, rightfully so. But at the same time, the Sumerian culture is just as amazing and has its own unique 
mysteries attached to it, yet it has not seemed to get the same level of notoriety or interest on a popular level that the Egyptians have. And so Sitchin and has really, I think, done a great service in bringing all of this out into the open and, and, and brought it out of the halls of the ivory towers of academia and put it right there in the public view where people can see it. That said, I think that it's stopped then. A lot of research has been stopped because of that. And there's more being done. In academia, they're still working on a lot of translations. There's there's people who are actively involved in this research. But it seems that some on the alternative side, it's, it's being slowed down or what you have are just simply people out there repeating Sitchin's work. And I, I've, I just thought that was completely wrong. And so what I've tried to do in my research and in this book that's coming out after Evil Archaeology is really go back to the source material. And, and I address Sitchin, I address all the other authors and contributors, but then I try to take a step back and I look and take it from a fresh perspective and I re reanalyze some of the most popular text fragments. And also I bring out some of the text fragments that people have not even looked at. And so there's, believe it or not, there's a lot that people haven't even been exposed to telling a lot about the Anunnaki and their nature. And from those, I found even things like, what did they eat? What recipes did they like to have? You know, they, there's so many detailed descriptions and things about just their daily lives. And so this and other things, I just, I really, uh, you know, I, I really am, I'm, I'm grateful Sitchin did what he did. And there's a lot of ways he was right. Then there's a lot of things that it really hasn't anything to do with right or wrong as much as it's just incomplete. Right. And so what I'm trying to do is go back to that original research and pick up where everybody's left off and re-examine it with fresh eyes and see what we can do to really figure this out and try to address the, quote, Sumerian problem. Well, I'll definitely really be uh, looking forward to that. I mean, there's there's thousands of tablets that are out there. Many of them, of course, are in you know somebody's living room out there, and, and you're right, many of them are inaccessible. It, um, is part of the problem also the accessibility to the area? Because you're talking Iraq, which, which is not very easily accessible. Oh, absolutely it is. It is the accessibility to the area is definitely a problem. And so you have a limited ability to get there. There are some excavations going on, but as I exposed in a in a previous report, the Sumerian controversy, the the people that are having access to these areas are often, I, I would call them politically motivated or corrupt individuals. They're people who are of elite. I families. think you outright said that in there. <laughs> yeah, I did. The um, the families who uh, collect art actually will do things like fund excavations well i mean that seems like a, a conflict of interest to me you have big oil businesses like that going into the region and helping excavate or look or putting money out to do these excavations and so you get teams of, of people with the these just wonderful resources that regular people just don't have Sometimes, in my opinion, what they do is they launder their money through the university systems. And so, you know, it's the universities doing the work. They're taking the, you know, credit for it. But at the end of the day, who they're getting their money from and answering are things like big oil, foreign governments, and elite families, individual family members, not just some spooky like, oh, it's the, the Rothschilds or any of this. It's not right. even that. It's actual individuals that can be named and outed, and they don't really even apologize for this. They say, oh, you know, I have one quote in my book that's from 
you know, a guy that was doing this who said, oh, wow, I didn't know that you could buy such things. And it's like, wow, he's just like totally detached from, you know, the, the reality of the situation. So you have that sort of thing happening in these war-torn countries where it's just corruption and everybody out for themselves. And then in terms of just, uh, you know, regular researchers, that's where that even when you get the things, even when you get the artifacts, it's how how is the an average researcher going to access these it is not easy so they have to be scanned or digitized if you're actually going to go to the museums and research it that's great but you have to have the proper credentials to do so you have to be able to travel to do that so there's a barrier to people researching it that way and if you just research what's already been out there and translated i mean that's pretty easy to do with databases and things but again if you're if you're just a, an average person looking you have to have access to these databases that means you have to pay a lot of money i mean a lot of money thousands of dollars a month memberships to have these databases that are exclusive to academic organizations so a way around that of course is to be an alumni of a group right so that works you know or you can uh, be a professor and so there's that but see there's all of these sort of hurdles there's these barriers to accessibility so if you have all of that if you have a little bit of money or you have a library that's really good in your town that has access to certain databases and you can find the you know, information in the journals uh, that's great but now what you're looking at is another hurdle where most of the literature is written in what they call academies it's sort of like legalese it's a way of writing that is in my opinion purple purposefully exclusive it's it's done in a way to exclude the average person from being able to fully understand or even care to engage with the literature and this doesn't mean that oh you know just somebody who's not college educated it's it's you can have a four-year degree and still have a difficult time getting through these 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 papers because they're just so you know hidden so it's it's a way that you can hide things in plain sight so you're looking at a multiple you know filtration system that is at the end of the day not impossible but it is certainly discouraging which is why a lot of people just are discouraged and instead of doing the work it's easier to just google something or to go on youtube and look and then you know while you can obviously get some decent information from that you look at all the the ways it's been filtered and, and cut down into where you know it's handed to to you that way and it's not the original source material and so that's 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 something that is really bothers me. I'm really out there trying <laughs> well, to, you know. <laughs> ad admittedly, you know that's that's how I found you. As I was searching around places like, uh, you know, YouTube and what have you, looking for information. And yeah, I, I certainly am a, a proponent for you know utilizing your library to its fullest extent. But um, I absolutely agree with you on that. A couple of things, real quick. Um, so $10 super chat from Chipper Terry. Thank you very much, uh, Chipper Terry. And a $10 super chat from Joe Chandler. She says, because I love you, Mad Hatters, proud to call you my soul family. Thank you both very, very much. Absolutely appreciate that. Um, kind of, yeah, kind of backing up a little bit, Heather, um, what you were saying about, you know, those that are, you know, that have that, that have that power, that have the finances to go out there and search for these items. Um, aren't several of these people out there trying to collect these items because they believe it's going to give them some sort of power? I think there are some people with those motivations. It may seem crazy, but the Nazis 
you know, had, right. had an arm that did that thing too. I mean, this is something that I deal with a lot in my work are crazy people doing crazy things. And a lot of people don't want to talk about that because I think they fear that they will seem crazy if they just simply talk about it or that they will appear to be agreeing with these things. But you don't have to agree with it to recognize that it's happening. So you have these elite people who are, you know, you could argue, oh, maybe they know something we don't. Okay, fine. Um, or maybe they're just so at the top of life, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They already have everything they need. So now they're just self-actualizing and they're just sort of out there and you know what do they say like poor people who think differently are um crazy and rich people who think differently are eccentric so still <laughs> it's a good so way to put it. Is, you know so i mean when, once you get to this particular level of of you know nobody's telling you no anymore why not maybe you are going out there looking for the spear of destiny still thinking it's going to give you some sort of you know power so I do think that there are people out there that are looking for particular artifacts to suit some sort of occult desire in them. Uh, and then, of course, there's just people doing it uh, for money. And this brings me back to the, the Iraqi museum looting. I mean, this yeah. was something that it, it was it was amazing. It, it, it They had so many artifacts just stolen from them right in front of them. Just And, and they weren't just a, it wasn't a smash and grab. This is something that when the people they chose specific went, items, right? In, absolutely. In that yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. They did. They had and they had they had knowledge of of where specific items were then hidden. So the museum, uh, there were five staff members that were very committed to this museum, and they knew that you know this war was about to happen, and so they went through and they they went into the basement and they hid specific artifacts all into these different. <clears throat> excuse me storage areas and so they would lock those up and and you know and and so when when it was looted some of these storage areas just remained locked they were just nobody had accessed them while other ones they had used keys to get in and these other ones that they used the keys to get into they were the ones that had the tablets and some different things like that and so they definitely knew what they were looking for. And this isn't just somebody saying, oh, well, isn't that a coincidence? That's, you know, um, no, this this was something that was found in, uh, in an investigation after the fact. After the fact, there there was a, uh, a, cap, a, a colonel, rather, that uh, his name was Colonel Matthew Bogdanos. He is currently the assistant district attorney in Manhattan. And he was a colonel in the United States Marine Corps Reserves. And uh, in 2003, he was on active duty in the Marine Corps and led an investigation into the looting of this museum. And after looking at the evidence, he believed that this was premeditated and that the people had a clear understanding of what artifacts that they needed to take. And, and so something that was clear to him was that the artifacts that were taken were ones that it couldn't be sold on the black market even because they were so popular and important that someone would recognize that as you know, immediately. So what he concluded was that based on the evidence, these artifacts were had specifically been chosen because they already had a buyer or somebody waiting to receive them. So they it's it's they thought okay somebody somebody in an elite family, whoever, who had the money and who was a collector sort of made a grocery list and said, here, U.S. military, pick these up for me and, you know, we're, we're good. 
And so this isn't even a conspiracy anymore. This was actually, you know, a, a colonel's own findings. And it's on, it's, he wrote a book about it. And it's legitimately in the, um, you know, reports after the fact. So, I mean, it goes on and on. I, I cover that in some of my work too. But yes, it was eluding and they took um, five, it was over 5,000 Sumerian cylinder seals wow. gone. That's wow. insane. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's so many. That's tragic. That's tragic right there. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, you know, who, who got those? I mean, are they on the black market? No, they really determined that they couldn't be. Who, who else would have them? Well, we can't put them in museums. I mean, some of them were returned, uh, you know, so they were returned, some of them, a few of them. But so many are just gone forever. Where did they go? They're definitely with collectors. I received emails from people. Um, one in particular was from Saudi Arabia. I'll never forget. I opened my email and it's this this guy who sent me these high resolution pictures, beautiful, large pictures of his living room. And it was very palatial, a huge television and a sectional and, you know, all this. And then right in the middle of that, just average living room, but just, you know, on a very uh, extravagant scale. He had a, a case, a museum quality glass case, and inside was one of the biggest, most beautiful, complete cylinder seals I had ever seen. And he just sends me these pictures and was like, I'd like you to maybe, can, can you via email sort of appraise this for me and maybe translate it, you know? <laughs> but wow. it was like sitting in the middle of his living room, just like it's a, hey, check this out, like great conversation starter. So, I mean, yeah, yeah it's actually some of those lost room. material. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have no way of knowing. So, you know, of course, the universities and people once once the, the elites get their hands on it and their pick of it, what do we get? You know, the universities, the public, we're going to get little pot shards that are basically saying, oh, yeah, this guy traded his goats for this grain. Oh, isn't that fascinating? It tells us so much. And, you know, some of the better stuff is just gone mysteriously. Some of um, the information from, like you said, they're doing excavate what what you know of the excavations or or stuff that they've done there, have have they disclosed any of that information? And um, I was just curious as to whether or not burial practices and like you were talking about diet, was there anything specific about the Sumerian burial practices and diet that were one way before all this knowledge came and another way after. Oh, that, that's a, that's a, um, <clears throat> excuse me. That's a fascinating question. Um, there is actually, uh, the, there are differences between the divine diet and eating habits of Mesopotamian gods and goddesses. Uh, and that's been preserved in the Sumerian texts. Um, so it, it's clear that their nourishment um, was important not only to their survival, but also the gods' appeasement. So they were really into food. Um, so components of this sort of divine diet, um, they were they were they were preserved in such a way that it would make them sort of look like recipes or instructions and and worship as well. It was just this this weird sort of like, hey, this is very special. So, you know, this is how you prepare the gods' food. And so you'd think of it as being some sort of ambrosia or, or what have you, but it was really a lot of meat. And so it, it seems that the, the, they couldn't eat all of the same foods as humans. So it has this question of, well, were they human or were they not human? But it sort of makes it sound like they weren't able to eat everything that the, the humans were able to. But it, it's it, it, initially 
it's described that they only started to eat meat after they created man. And they used man and its slaves to produce their food, hence the development of agriculture. And so when there's an established system of agriculture, certain foods that, that were produced, like cereal or, or dairy products or things, um, they, they just didn't satisfy the appetites of the gods. And this was something that you find in um, a lot of these different fragments, one of them called the debate between grain and sheep. It indicates that after eating sheep and grain, these Anunnaki gods were just not satisfied. Um, even if it, even after they consumed, quote, sweet milk of their holy sheepfold, they were not satisfied. Um, as a result, they gave these things to mankind. So they said, you know, yeah, the sheep and grain and the milk and all these derivative products, they just don't do it, but man can have these. And so it turns into this whole, you know, system where eventually they're eating meat and they receive them as burnt offerings so in history you'll see people sacrificing goats or lambs or this and you know you might get this idea or someone might that they just burn the offering and that was it but that wasn't the case they were burning the offering and eating it or giving it to the gods to eat and so what you have are these sort of gods that are using man as slaves to produce their food it wasn't just enslaving mankind to do things like look for minerals or mining or whatnot it was also to feed them so they started this mass agricultural system and said here work the land be, a, be an agrarian slave but then i also you have to do this animal husbandry and your grains and and things you eat that but we want the goods we want the meat and not only do we want the meat we want the beer we want the cake so they were like they had definite recipes for things like cakes and baked goods and lots of beer and meat so all the most decadent and rich things you could think of that's what they they preferred to have especially beef they really loved beef um but so it, they, they had vegetables, apples, beets, cherries, pomegranate, a lot of the things that you'd recognize today. Um, it was, a, it was, you know, there was, a, there was a plentiful harvest. But the gods themselves uh, and royalty, they really were into game, but especially beef, and they wanted it roasted. And they were, um, they also loved goat a lot. But the, and they specified in some of the tablets too that they did not like their meat boiled and they did not like it fried. So they were very picky, but after they settled with the, the people around them, um, vegetarianism started to go away. So there's an indicator that they started as vegetarians and then became ravenous. Some tablets saying that it got so bad with the meat eating that they ended up consuming human flesh. Oh, wow. That's not, some, that's not something that you hear a lot in, you know, some of the discussion about the Anunnaki. And so again, this is where I try to look a little more detailed into alternative texts and just different, maybe not so popular ones to look at and give a more holistic picture of what were these beings doing and, and uh, you know, to sort of add to the current understanding of what these beings were. But yes, there was definitely a diet shift. So that's a very interesting question. Scientifically speaking, if you, if you look at it from a completely different point of view, could the diet shift, if we were looking at it from today's eyes, be an iron deficiency based on extended exposure to a diet that lacked that that particular mineral and that when they finally started to to get it that it was almost as if they gorged themselves on it could i mean because you know i mean it 
I, I always try to play devil's advocate and look at mm-hmm. things from completely different points of view. And it just makes one wonder, you know, is there a logical explanation for it or is it exactly as it states? Right. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, perhaps it, it would have been an iron deficiency, but then you'd have to. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because these are just sort of accounts. And so we don't have Anunnaki bodies necessarily to look at and say, you know, did they have a deficiency or or were they even vegetarian before they came? All we have are these texts that indicate that they were vegetarian and then they became um, very carnivorous to the point of, of gluttony. At the same time, the humans that were there, not to not to suggest that the Anunnaki were not humans, and that's something that I think is an important uh, differentiator too between Sitchin's work and the work of people like, say, uh, Christian O'Brien. Um, there's there's a lot of different thoughts out there about well, what what were these people? Were they aliens from a different planet? Did they, you know, are they from a different dimension or were they people from a different land? What were these beings? So every indication that I have found shows that they are human human beings. Um, and that's not to suggest that there's not more to that story. And that's something that I go into more in, in relation to sort of, I guess you could say ancient demonology, uh, maybe for lack of better terms, but we have a difference in Sumerian text and understanding between the Anunnaki, what what and who they were, and what was included in that. So there wasn't a system in, in Sumer where there was simply humans and Anunnaki, and those Anunnaki were gods, and they were the no, there were humans, and then there were Anunnaki, and within the Anunnaki were different types of gods. Some of them were humans, some of them were humans that had ascended to some position of power. Some of them were considered semi-divine some of them were considered supernatural not even at all human and they have those have different names so you have the seven sages the seven sages of the anunnaki they are not human that's something that the texts make very clear that they are not human and so you know to sort of just say well they were all aliens every single one of them that's not the case because within the anunnaki pantheon of gods they have different ideas about all of them. So there was a, a main God, there was even a Trinity, like what we'd have in say Christianity. They had lesser gods and they had demigods and then they had supernatural beings, they had demons, they had a whole host of things that would fall under this idea of Anunnaki. And so it gets very confusing uh, to a lot of people who when they study the Anunnaki, it's like, you know, to make matters worse, a lot of the depictions of the Anunnaki aren't even Sumerian as much as they are Assyrian or Babylonian which is, you know, a long time out from that. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation about the Anunnaki that well, I try to clear up a lot. And a lot um, of people I see try to fit like the watchers from the Book of Enoch into this story as well. How, how do you see that fitting or does it just not? It, uh, I do think it fits. I, 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 I Yes, I, I do think it fits. But again, it, it has to do with the terminology. And, uh, you know, I think when we look at this information, we're looking at see, like the term watchers in uh, the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch was written, you know, a lot long further along than, than was the Sumerian text. Right. So a lot of these things, the names get changed. The ideas of them get changed. They get, they go through what's called religious syncretism where you have say, for instance, this happens in Greek God and Roman gods. You have Poseidon and, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Um, 
the the well, you know the the um say Aphrodite and Venus or you know mm-hmm. the, these sorts of Neptune Neptune and Poseidon you have this idea where these are the same gods they just have different names and sometimes different attributes and that's because after a while of one culture if another one comes in and assimilates they take on those other gods they kind of merge with them or even out of that make a third god so it can get very confusing and so you know if you look at all of this from where we are in 2019 and we look at the past it's like well there's these watchers there's these um you know sages there's these anunnaki there's there's all these different names for these it's the nephilim and and these and it's like well where do these fit in what, what are all these and so um I think that uh, that that's part of the the struggle, but I do think they are related. I'm not going to go so far as say, oh, they're the exact same, you know, things because there are differences. But I think the source is the same. I think if you were to kind of reduce it all to its initial starting point, I think what you'd find is a, a more simplified storyline that contains you know these beings and the situation, and then over time it develops into. Know, different ways of, of describing it and then they sort of mix up and and what have you so again it's really hard because you have these ancient tablets that are written in one language and then they get rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and translated over and over and over again and, right. and even then they go into you know the, a different culture and they become greek and then they become you know christianized and so that's in evil archaeology that's something that i sort of go over as well with regards to mesopotamian deities because a lot of the deities or the demons that the Sumerians had like this Pazuzu um, they can be seen as the modern inspiration for the idea of demons today or at least the archetypal images that we have of demons today and so those ideas get carried along and carried along until you know they take on their own shape and and they adjust to the current culture but if you strip it all down and try to look at that source material you'll find that it all goes back to the same like all roads lead to this one sort of more simplified root explanation right just over the millennia it's been spread throughout the different cultures and they've put their own spin on it <laughs> yeah so, exactly and uh donna gorton has a related question uh what your thoughts are on the nephilim due to the giant size skeletal remains that have been found the giants that's that's uh something that is a really contested issue that mm-hmm. um you know because you see a lot of these pictures go around and some people will say look there's these giant skeletons and, and things and right no matter what i have not been able to find evidence that these really big giants that that they were real a lot of them are art installations and these different things but then there are accounts of different collections of bones that are hidden in particular museums that are larger now, it's it's a really good question because so the question of whether or not they're giants would depend on the, the context of giant. It would depend on how big they actually were. So if ancient gods were taller than average, uh, given the gravity, you would think their their maximum growth would not exceed ten feet. Really, you know, for the, the way that the Earth could, you know, was just it doesn't make sense if they're anthropomorphic or manlike that they would be more than ten feet. Just due to physics um but 10 but 10 feet is pretty huge you know that that would be i would look at a 10 foot person and say oh my gosh that's a giant but then again i'm five foot two so if i'm looking right. at someone six <laughs> foot two they're a giant you know so this is something that i think um is really 
it's really unclear scientifically and we can interpret it all day and a lot of it does fit into this idea of giants so you know just in in the idea of interpretation who's to say it, it you know they could have been giants but in terms of the the science of it it's really hard to say the, the word giant i just am not a big fan of i think because when okay. you say giant it conjures up the idea of like jack and the beanstalk giants and then immediately people say oh no that's impossible but you know i like to listen to the ancients and if they're telling me that these people were giants who am i to say no i would put my cultural you know bias into it and say oh they're saying they're giants though that's not true because to me a giant would be the jolly green giant or something ridiculous but that's not fair to do the to the accounts of the ancients who are saying no these were giants well so, to them they may have been very large people right what about something like the denosovans which were supposed to be uh, a taller race of humans exactly no that's a fantastic point that's something that i think um is not addressed very well in a modern say um anything really i think that it hasn't been long uh, since people were saying well neanderthals and humans they didn't interbreed they didn't i mean some people still hold that to be true and we know from dna evidence that's absolutely not true of course we you know mixed and so right. i do believe that at one point in time there were a lot of different types of hominids whether they be very tall and strong or even very small and so i think there was a lot of diversity among hominids at a point in the times of ancients and earlier because a lot of these stories were not just you know very ancient in terms of their their when they were written but they came from oral traditions as well so how old are they we really don't even have a, a clue they could have been so old so yes yeah, some of these accounts could have been that of meeting up with a different type of, of hominid, one of our early ancestors or that sort of thing. That's my personal opinion on the Epic of Gilgamesh, the, that story where they have the um, Gilgamesh and, and his friend Enkidu, mm -hmm. who they describe very well to be a man of the woods, the, the wild man, he was hairy. You know, all of these things that would indicate that he was, you know, in maybe a different sort of, of human type species. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very much of the belief that, that they were giants, but not in that fantastic sense. And so if we can, you know, a lot of people will take it in that direction. And so I don't, I think that they were definitely tall, taller and bigger, as you said, um, you know, maybe from a different hominid or what, or what, but <clears throat> so I think the the term giant is, is relative, but I do think that it, the texts make it pretty clear that yes, they were, they were much bigger than the people that they were living with at the time, especially if you consider the people that they came and invaded were hunter gatherers who, you know, the bodies and the remains that we would have from those people are generally much smaller. They didn't have the same level of nutrition. I think people forget when they, when they look at situations like this and, and start to research, they forget something that's extremely important that hair color, eye color, eye color body size, um, hair type, height, weight, everything can be slimmed down to geography. Where particular groups of people lived can dictate the color or texture of their skin, the color or texture of their hair, their eyes. If they live in another region, they might be completely different and their height might be stunted or accelerated based on diet. There are all these different scientific factors that that need to be accounted in to mm -hmm. figure out, you know, if somebody's size is above the norm. Right. And I think absolutely do that. 
Absolutely. That, and I mean, there's nutrition has a lot to do yes. with size and as do, do genes. I mean, and not just genes, because you can, you can have two short parents and this has been proven even recently. It's, it's quite fascinating work that they're doing to show that you can have two, say, shorter parents who are from a, a different country. They come over to America, you know, they have a baby in America and that baby becomes bigger than the parents due to the nutrition that they had. So even though they had the genetic influence, you know, the nutrition around them and the availability of that leads them to be much bigger. Now there's that genetic thing, but there's also genetic, um, you know, variations, sort of maybe diseases or things that could have, you know, contributed that way. So, you know, in addition to just a regular, you know, oh yeah, I'm, you know, more likely to be tall or whatnot, there are different, you know, gigantism and, and these sorts of things that, you know, for all, for all we know that maybe some of these people had that and it was just striking to them. I mean, but definitely I think there's something going on that they, I tend to like to try to start uh, with this idea that what the ancients are saying is true. I don't like to look at the ancient man or their, their accounts and say, oh, well, right off the bat, I'm just going to think they're lying. And so I always look at it like they, they're, they're telling me the truth. I just have to, it's my responsibility to you understand and interpret that using as little of my modern person bias as I as I can. Yeah, it always struck me this idea that the ancients were lying because it it was so much work for them to create these tablets and uh, record their history that why would you lie? You know, if it's going right. to be that much work to do it. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So uh, you you did get everybody down in chat talking about their height, which was kind of uh, funny to watch. <laughs> um, but we have uh, we're, we're getting down toward the end of the show. So um, we have uh, one more related question here. Uh, where would you consider this is from Ren. Where would you consider the line between human and non-human? Hmm. Wow, that's a great question. Human and non-human. That's almost a, an ethical or moral question, isn't it? Because, <laughs> I mean, because it very well could human? be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What is what is human? I mean, because if you have a, um, I mean, that, that's might be why we're in the situation we're in. Because as as Homo sapiens sapien, you know, where are all these other hominids other than there, we have the remains? I mean, we went to war with them. We killed them all. So there's evidence to show we ate some of them. We clearly um, bred them out. You know, we just. Yeah. We did. We just got rid of all of those others. Or, I mean, some people, of course, would say, well, there's Bigfoot. He's out there somewhere. And so maybe, maybe we didn't get rid of all of them. But, um, <laughs> I mean, we got rid of all of the the diversity in the species. So what does that mean? Does that mean that, you know, maybe we're threatened by the idea of that question in and of itself is, well, we are human. Homo sapiens sapiens are human and that's it because you know, maybe that really just shakes us to our core to even question what it means to be human, because it's somebody wrote a book a while back about vegetarianism and you know why we eat certain animals and we don't eat others, and it's just those are fundamental questions like why and what and where do we draw these lines? I think they're kind of imaginary lines, really. So I, I think it's just more of a subjective answer. So for me, I mean, if I'm looking at uh, an ape, I would say that that's, that's not a human per se but i mean does that devalue this this being and how, how do we how do we value this i mean i think it's a really tough thing to answer we know human when we see it or so we think but you know and especially going into ai and these certain things in the future 
this is going to be something that everybody's going to talk about, you know, in, in much greater detail is when robots and things become sentient or we have some sort of singularity or something, you know, whatever, then it's becoming more of a real thing. Yeah. Different? Yeah. I mean, so this question of a, when is a human a human? I don't think I can even begin to answer that in the, in the time that we would have now. <laughs> so that's a great question. That's, that's actually a really, really great question. Fair enough. Fair enough. In communication that they can understand. And that's why when you bring up AI, I think that's where it's really going to get hinky. Yeah. Because they're going, they're getting so advanced in artificial intelligence and in being able to, I mean, we are, we already see that our phones and our computers and everything else essentially think for themselves, you know, when it comes to uh, if, if we so much as think or even whisper that we're interested in something, it pops up on every smart device we've got in all different manners so ai is getting there and it's getting there in a hurry but i think that we people the way we are now dictate a human as being able to communicate in a way that we can understand because animals feel the same as we do they don't communicate in the way that we can understand and let, let me if i may let me throw out a really weird monkey wrench into this one too. Mm -hmm. I was doing some research uh, for something else a while back and uh, like sort of more to the point of what we were talking about earlier with academies and database mm -hmm. and hidden in plain sight and whatnot. I came across an article, an actually published article that had to do with uh, head swapping. That sounds a little strange. And so, um, yeah, so this article uh, it was, uh, my, my, um, my graduate school was it also had a medical school. And so I have access to sort of like PubMed or medical journals and things. This was in a medical journal for psychologists. So this, or psychiatrists rather. So this, this particular article was sort of questioning that same thing. What does it mean to be human? And this, so this goes beyond just hominids or AI. This actually had to do with chimeras, and this was really bizarre, okay, but um, they, they were doing this study, and it was sort of this question of how would we as psychiatrists help an individual who had their head swapped? And they, they approached this question as so matter-of-fact and blasé as though it was already happening, as though they had chimeras running around and like underground bases or something that they were like trying to like forecast this on. It was really bizarre, and so the question was really you know, okay, so forget the, the medical aspects of it. Let's just assume that we can swap heads. How would we treat a patient this way? So for instance, if you had a man who, you know, had a dog body now, would he still be a man or is he now a dog? And how do we help him work through those things? And what would happen if he starts feeling more like a dog than a man? How are we ethically going to help him, you know, and, and with mental health and social services and these things? And it was, it sounds absolutely bonkers because it is bonkers, but it is, it's a legitimate study. I, 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 I can, you know, I don't, I don't remember the name of it or the school affiliated, but what I'll do is I will put the link on my blog. I'll actually upload the paper and that's what I'll do. I'll put the PDF for free on my blog. So everybody can take a look at this and sort of just say, what? Because it's just, it's a fun, I guess, fun read if, and it's a little bit creepy, but. I think that is fascinating and I'll tell you why, because, and I know Mike, we're getting, we're short. Yeah, but we are, but that's all right. What I find unbelievably fascinating about that is that because you have, Let's, let's use the, the, the fella that has a dog body and a human head. 
his brain is going to think one way. His body is going to function another. And I think that is the ultimate question is which one is going to win what he thinks or what he can look down and physically see. So are we what we are or are we what we see? And And I think that is brilliant. And perhaps this too, because the more and more research is being done into the gut brain connection. So yes, if you have a human head, you're, I suppose you'd be thinking you're human, but if you have a dog gut, would your gut biome have something to do then with that? Because there's, there's in your gut, if you have particular bacteria, they, they've been able to say that, well, you know, almost like parasites, but this particular gut bacteria can actually send um, information up neurotrans they can neurotransmit information to your brain to have you seek certain types of foods or, or perform certain yep. types of behaviors to feed that gut so the gut brain connection what if they're not connected you have one gut of another and a brain of another what kind of weird mad science kind of island of dr moreau ethical problems are we going to have here i think it's really yeah well i've, I've heard of cases I've heard of cases where people who have had transplants have had memories uh, or inclinations like that towards food of the uh, of the donor. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. it mm, so raises a craving, lot of those questions. Yeah, that's be craving, awesome. Craving some kibbles and bits or something. Begging strips. There's always room for begging strips. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we need to wrap it up. Um, Heather, one thing I did want you to, to mention um, before we do go ahead and wrap it up. Um, I know we're a few minutes past here, but your your star network that you're relaunching. Yeah, star. Um, this is this is a project that's close to my heart. Um, and probably, as you could tell, you got me going on the the academies and the the barriers to access. It's uh, something that you know I worked with uh, in my dissertation work and this idea of access and people having access to information in public history. And so, I started an organization called Star. It's the Society for Truth and Archaeological Research. It's a member supported organization of independent researchers and professionals who are interested in history from an inclusive perspective, but also a daring one. And so it's a, it's open-minded and the belief is that all theories are worth consideration because science is supposed to be based on empirical and measurable evidence. Um, and so in at STAR, we strive to present all sides of a subject in the name of scientific inquiry and, and we don't discriminate against theories that are labeled typically as fringe or pseudo. Um, because those terms are pejorative and they're divisive and they're counterproductive to the true scientific method. And so this sort of, this organization that, I, that I've developed, it's, uh, it has open membership regardless of credentials. And uh, so non-university credentialed or affiliated individuals, um, people who have spent countless hours of their lives who would be considered just armchair historians. I'm trying to get everybody together so that we can be empowered help independent researchers and support them through community resources and education so that the truth about human history can be uncovered and most importantly shared. And so this is this is an organization organization that I'm starting and I have started. I, I, I did a little bit with it before, but I had some really terrible things happen um, a few years ago and I was hacked. It, it just it was it was a disaster and I had some people involved that try to take down the whole thing. And so what I've done is I've rebuilt it with a a very secure network and I've moved everything to my site that will eventually then 
be linked to a site that I'm building currently with uh, my own servers and this sort of thing. And so um, right now, I'm you know, if you go to my website, you can learn all about it. And if you want to become a member right now, everybody can become a member at uh, any donation amount. So it's a lifetime. I'm a member, member. by the way. It's a, it's a lifetime. <laughs> so you guys membership. get on it. Later, what it'll be is just a, um, you know, a, a monthly small membership fee to have access to documentaries and videos and resources and things that a lot of times I can't even share on the internet or publicly because it's really sensitive information and it's kind of dangerous. And so I thought, well, I'm going to put it on my own servers and make it so that, you know, just try to take me down. This is going to be out there regardless. And so we're doing a bit of a, an upstart fundraiser right now. Um, sort of a internal GoFundMe, and so that's why anybody, even if you just donate a dollar, that gets you lifetime membership, and so you'll never have to go through and 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 pay any sort of like uh, fee to to access any of the documentaries or resources that will be part of Star. And so, uh, I would encourage anyone interested in seeking the truth and doing research to uh, definitely check it out. And, um, I, I really appreciate that. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Okay, a few comments that came in over, um, well, throughout. So B3 Airspace did comment that, uh, please tell Dr. Lynn her website is awesome. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, Mickey Dole was saying that she could listen to you all day. And uh, Shauna, our chat shenanigator, says, Heather needs to be one of our speakers at our Paracon. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds fun. <laughs> so. Yeah, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to figure that out. Well, one of these it's it's coming up June first. That might be a little uh, short for you this year, but maybe next year, maybe we could awesome. figure something out. Yeah, let me know. Okay, thanks. Uh, all right. So thanks how for those comments? Yeah. Uh, how can everybody find you? Uh, your website and of course the new book. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a little bit of a cough. <laughs> um, my website is www.drheatherlynn.com. And uh, my new book is out now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and in stores. It's pretty much everywhere. And uh, But definitely uh, go to my website. Everything will be there. It's sort of a central hub. And then if anybody wants to get in touch with me, I love hearing from everybody. I love getting emails about their experiences and these sorts of things. And if you even just have questions or, or want some answers or need some help researching something or need resources, definitely contact me at heather at drheatherlynn.com. I'd be happy to help in any way that I could. Fantastic. And I did put a uh, link to the book down in the description. So, But also check out her, her website for sure. And get signed up for Star. <laughs> Yes. All right. All right. So uh, real quick here, let me, I know there are several super chats that came in uh, toward the end there. Robert Hanna, Tammy Heitzman, and Tom McNicholas. I uh, really do appreciate that. Prior to that was BD Flint, Chipper Terry, uh, and Joe Chandler. So really do appreciate all of those super chats and being super chat superstars this evening. So we're running a, a bit over. So what we'll do for the shout outs is we'll get to the shout outs during Inside the Upside Down, which follows uh, this show here. So uh, Hang on for that. That'll be about uh, 10 minutes after we get off here and uh, we'll pick right back up. So um, Heather, again, thank you very much for coming back out and congratulations on the new book. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. You guys are awesome. And thank you so much for everybody in the chat and, and uh, for just listening and giving me some time to speak tonight. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, everybody. We'll see everybody in a few. Take care. Have a good one.